Hello and welcome back to my YouTube channel. Today I am talking with my friend David Congdon and we're going to be talking about dialectical theology. And David, why are we talking about dialectical theology today? It's very exciting news. We are announcing the start of a society for dialectical theology. Um, this is a new venture we're doing. Uh, the idea here is really to uh, see how we can claim the tradition of dialectical theology for today, um, to draw on the resources of Bart, Boltman, and others um, to respond to our situation. And um, so we're excited. Um, Very excited. We're nervous because we don't know where it's going <laughs> to go and how to do this necessarily, but, um, but we're looking forward to seeing what comes of it. And so we hope you'll join us. Um, we will announce something publicly soon and you will have an opportunity to uh, public, you know, to state your uh, interest in, in the, in the society, so you can give us your email and let us know who you are, and we will send you information as we have it available. Yep, and as you're watching this, there will be a link down in the description below to a form that you can fill out to join the Society for Dialectical Theology. I'll do my best to put a little info card or link up on the screen for you to click as well, and we'll do that at the end of the video too. Uh, and like I said, just because we're doing this uh, whole society thing, we wanted to give people a basic idea of what this whole dialectical theology business is all about and who's involved and why we think it's uh, an important theological movement still today. And we have a lovely outline that we're going to try to stick to, a set of questions that we're going to try to move through, uh, and we'll see how close to script we can stay. Uh, the first question that we really want to address, I'm just going to pose it to David so he can uh, rattle off some of his deep historical knowledge of the dialectical theology movement, is who are we talking about when we talk about dialectical theologians? What figures uh, play into this movement uh, that we're hoping to draw on for today? So I'll give a, I'll give a start. Um, so we're talking about primarily a group of people associated with Karl Barth in some respect. So Karl Barth uh, initiated at least some of the defining moves uh, with his Romans commentary. Um, but then around him, there were a group of people. These include uh, Rudolf Bultmann, of course, uh, but Friedrich Gogarten, uh, Emil Brunner, uh, um, Turnizen, Edward Turnizen, um, and then there are, and also for a period of time at least, Paul Tillich, um, and there are a few other, uh, Lucas Christ, uh, and there's some other figures as well. And Wolf. Uh, yes, right, and Wolf. Yeah. Um, and then there are descendants as well. So there are students who come along, um, mm -hmm. Ulvitzer, uh, Fuchs, Abeling, and then later Jungel. Mm -hmm. um, they are figures who come along and, and participate as well. And Goldwitzer and Jungel are the two that you and I interact with most. Um, you've done a lot of work on Jungel. I'm currently doing a lot of work on Goldwitzer. And they, in interesting ways, um, both try to negotiate the heritage of dialectical theology and specifically the heritage of both Bart and Boltmann, and they're different sort of brands of dialectical theology. So uh, that's kind of where we've focused and, and gotten into the intricacies of what this whole dialectical theology business is all about. That's right, yeah. I mean, we but, can tease apart some of those. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll get to the teasing apart, definitely. Um, but for, first, I think we need to let people know, where does dialectical theology come from? Uh, I mean, we know something about some of these names, like Bart and Boltmann and some of the other figures that we mentioned, but uh, what brings them together as a dialectical theological movement? What's kind of the backstory there? All right, so the place to begin, I think, um, and you can, Travis, uh, fill me in here, but um, so I think what we're going to start is with liberal theology. So 
Bart, Boltmann, Gogarden, these were all theologians trained in what we call Protestant liberalism of the German 19th century, German uh, liberal theology. Schleiermacher, um, Trotsch, so Arnach. Especially Ritchell is Ritchell, yeah. Key, key figure. Schleiermacher initiated it, but then Ritchell really kind of formed it as a school, as a movement. And then Ritchell's students uh, and, and colleagues uh, carried on. But um, so Trelch in particular and Hermann are the kind of next generation after Ritchell who are uh, the professors teaching uh, the people who form dialectical theology. Um, but the key, key ideas here would be um, historical criticism. So they, they all share an, an awareness of historical consciousness, um, the need to critically, historically analyze the biblical text. Um, they also share uh, issues of modern epistemology. They're, both, they're all post-Kantian. They, they take Kant for granted in some respect. That is, uh, we can't simply assume metaphysics uh, is a working hypothesis for how we understand God and understand the world. Um, so there's a problem of knowledge, mm -hmm. how we talk about God, know God. At the basic level, our knowledge is circumscribed. Right. It's very clear boundaries. It's located in history. Mm -hmm. uh, we, and we are subjectively contributing to our, our knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say there's also something about just the overall Protestantism-ness of this <laughs> Protestantism-ness, okay. <laughs> um, there's a, a shared Luther uh, justification. Mm -hmm. It's all very Christocentric, too. I mean, liberalism is often misunderstood. People think it's somehow like a disregarding right. technology, disregarding Reformation, but it was a very Christocentric uh, form of theology. It's all about Jesus. Yeah. All about Jesus, right? Yeah. So it makes me think of Schleiermacher's uh, Christmas Eve dialogues, especially. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of yeah. being a central uh, document of liberal piety. And Richel's great work is this three-volume work on justification. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all that, that kind of shared heritage uh, of the Reformation, but specifically kind of a Lutheran Reformation. Although there are reformed. Uh, trajectories here as well so uh, yeah go on from that well i mean and you also get interestingly um in the german context in the 19th century you have the union church which brings together reformed and lutheran sensibilities especially in prussia in unique ways and you know schleiermacher comes out of this and some of the key uh, interests as well so um liberal theology is neither uh reformed nor lutheran per se and i think that carries over that kind of blending and uh, picking from uh, both traditions carries over into the dialectical theological movement uh, as well. Yeah, that's important. But then uh, coming at the end of the liberal period, right, the, the uh, 19th century doesn't end at um, the year 1900. It ends at, what, 1914, 1915, whenever World War I uh, kicks off, because you've got this uh, big war coming in here as well. And that uh, is one of the primary catalysts for where dialectical theology uh, comes from, and specifically how Barth reacted uh, to the war and the way that the war was portrayed in German culture. And you've done a lot of specific work on this, David, uh, about exactly what Bart was responding to there. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I mean, the common story is that there's this uh, manifesto of the 93, which is often used as sort of this monument to uh, German intellectual endorsement of the war. Um, and, and that's for sure. It was a real document that was very important for Bart. Um, that came out in October 1914. Um, I, I, in my own work, I've shown that Bart was also responding to another manifesto that came out a month earlier um, that was signed by uh, 29 uh, theologians and missionaries. So it's a specifically Christian document. 
uh, whereas the, the 93, there are intellectuals from all disciplines um, all over the academy. But including theologians. Including, including some theologians, right. Um, whereas the 29, they're all specifically Christian ministers, theologians, scholars, um, and includes the same key figures, uh, you know, Her uh, Hermann and uh, uh, Harnack are figures. Uh, Bobermead is also in there. So there's, there's some key figures there who were associated with, um, with Bart and Boltmann. Um, and so Bart preaches a sermon a little later and, and names that document, refers to it. Um, but, but in essence, Bart was scandalized by the theological support of the war. Um, and it called into question for him the theological ideas that were made, that made, made this possible. Mm -hmm. How is it possible that his professors um, could endorse a war um, in, in such a nationalistic way? The, the, the manifesto of the 29 is really remarkable because it specifically says that in supporting the war is a support of the Great Commission. Um, and so it really identifies directly uh, Germanism, this idea that you know, the mission of Germany as a nation with the mission of God. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's for Bart um, the key. Right, it was that kind of the way that that seemed to be obviously connected in most, most people's minds that uh, threw him for a loop. Um, Boltman also had some experiences in the first war, right? He did. Um, initially, the start of the war wasn't a scandal for him. Um, he, he was thoroughly within the liberal mentality. Um, he had a, a, two, a couple experiences. In 1916, he visited a military hospital and, and really encountered the brutality of the war in a face-to-face -face way. Um, that was a shock for him. And then the next year, his brother and then his very close friend of his um, both died. Uh, as a result of the war. Um, and so those experiences, I would not say that made him a, a dialectical theologian. That came later, but it certainly disenchanted him with biblical theology and made him skeptical about the overall optimism, um, the sense of divine providence that he, he did hold previously. If you look at his sermons before 1916 versus those after 1916, there's a clear break for him between this providential order that Germany is a part of, the church is a part of, and then after that, um, he talks about how our old view of God has been shattered and mm -hmm. no longer valid. So um, that's that was for him a big issue. But he didn't have a positive thing to replace it with. That's what, that came later. Okay. So we've got the war kind of decentering both Bart and Boltmann. Um, with reference to the liberal theological tradition, and we could talk also about the other kinds of influences that they then came under as they're looking for other things to do and things to replace this sort of liberal tradition with. Um, for Bart, uh, as you've laid out elsewhere, he's really in tune with the Luther Renaissance that's going on at the time. Uh, what was it? The, um, the 1517 version or 1516 version of Luther's Romans commentary was found and published for the first time in a long time, so that... Uh, created a flurry of scholarship around Luther at that point. Um, Hermann. And, and this, was, this was the 400th anniversary of the Reformation, sort of. Oh, right. Like, you know, that was there mm -hmm. well, a century after that now, but that was. Right, next, next year is the 500. Right. <laughs> so are we going to discover a new Luther commentary? Only time will tell. <laughs> we'll love that, yes. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Especially the publishers. <laughs> So there's the, uh, a new wave of scholarship on Luther happening and getting people back in touch with Reformation theology uh, instead of just going back only as far as Schleiermacher, so to speak. 
Um, and then what's Hermann up to in his dogmatics? Well, I mean, Hermann is a professor at Marburg that both Bart and Boltmann had. I mean, I, their dog, his dogmatics um, hadn't come out, I don't think at the time yet, but he was lecturing on theology. Right. It was actually his ethics that was especially important uh, for Bart at least, and I think for, for Boltmann to some extent. I mean, actually, I mean, Hermann was more influential for Bart. Um, he became more influential for Boltmann as time went on, but it wasn't initially that way. And both Bart and uh, Boltmann studied with Hermann, right? Right, yes. That was, he, was, he was an important direct influence there. Yeah. Uh, Bart's also being influenced at this point by uh, engagement in socialist politics, sort of practically on the ground in his parish in Soffenville. Um, in his parish, he has both factory owners and poor factory workers, and he very clearly sides with the factory workers, uh, which teaches him to see uh, the structures of society from the position of those who have been more marginalized by those structures as opposed to those who have benefited from them. And this no doubt helped uh, to enhance his critical stance toward uh, this too easy assertion of a close connection between culture and Christianity uh, during that period as well. And then you've got the Bloomharts. You want to say something about the Bloomharts, David? Um, sure. So uh, I'm, uh, they're the, the father and son. Um, I can never keep that name straight either. I was hoping, hoping you would. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So they have similar, uh, yeah, the names kind of are connected, but... Typical German names. Yeah, right. There's only a few names there. Um, the Bloomharts were important uh, for a number of reasons. The, the elder Bloomhart um, was famous for this miracle of the exorcism that happened. Um, and then the son uh, was a politician, very active in, in socialist politics uh, at the time. Um, Bart was... Bart visited the site where the exorcism, this miracle occurred, and, and was, was powerfully uh, kind of influenced by this vision of this eschatological kingdom kind of breaking into the world um, and having this real uh, effect and power. Um, and then also the connection between that event and its social political implications uh, for the world. So um, it, there are a lot of the themes that you see in Bart. This is kind of uh, mm -hmm. inbreaking of God's kingdom, this reign of God that has impact on the church and the world. So yeah, it's all for him. That was a inspirational moment. Right. Yeah. And then we can also talk about influences on Boltmann. Um, form criticism. He's instrumental in developing that, right? Yeah, I mean, he was a, a student of Johannes Weiss, and Weiss was one of the pioneers of New Testament form criticism. Um, uh, Gunkel was the Old Testament pioneer. Um, uh, Weiss and uh, Valhausen uh, were the New Testament ones, and, and uh, Debelius. Um, yeah, so, so Boltmann came along and really you know, was serious about applying it to the Gospels, uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels in particular. Um, and, the, and the reason why this is important is, I'm, I'm actually just doing research on this now. Um, so uh, his, his first encounter with the idea of the kerygma occurs in his form criticism. Um, 1919 is the first appearance of writings, and then it appears in 1921 in his book on the synoptic tradition, um, which is really his, his main work of form criticism. And, and so... Um, it's interesting because Bart later on uh, in the 50s when he's writing to Boltmann, they're having this dialogue back and forth. Bart asks Boltmann this question where he says, I don't understand how your form criticism led you to these positions later on. Um, 
And Boltman's response is, well, form criticism led me to search for the kerygma. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the point of connection. And Bart never really quite understood that connection, but, but it's, it's crucial. Form, form criticism was Boltman's path to see that the historical Jesus quests and the kind of naive optimism that liberalism had about using history and culture to get to our view of God and, and the church, that had, form criticism was an, an attack on all of that. Mm-hmm. It shattered your, your confidence in history as being a basis for faith. Um, so then it, it thrusts you into this position of, well, we need to look elsewhere. Then comes Bart and says, hey, word of God, this event happens. You know, God encounters the world, and and um, and so that becomes positive. Mm-hmm. It fills the hole that form criticism leaves open. So, what's it mean to search for the kerygma for Boltmann at that point? Um, that's a complicated question. <laughs> uh, initially, there is no search for the kerygma immediately. I mean, he the kerygma in its original form for for Boltmann refers to the preaching of the church about Jesus. So it's the preaching about Jesus as crucified and risen. Um, what's important about that is that Jesus himself is not, doesn't, doesn't preach the kerygma, right? It's not something that goes back to Jesus, it goes back to the church, about speaking about Jesus. But later on, as Boltman becomes more theologically astute and recognizes, you know, the issues involved here and how to think theologically, he realizes, well, we, we, we can't simply just repristinate and copy the original church's preaching. Um, there's, and, and more than that, we have to say something about Jesus as being a living presence now. Mm-hmm. So um, by the end of his, like his later career, he, he talks about Christ himself as the kerygma, right? So the living Christ, the present Christ mm-hmm. is himself the kerygma um, in that sense. Um, so there's this double, there's a kerygma as an historical kind of document or word set, set of statements about Christ in the early church. But then there's the kerygma as a theological norm, as a reality that's actually a divine event. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, he's eventually led that way thanks to form criticism, but also thanks to Bart. Right. So we've got Bart and Boltmann looking for alternatives. We've got them being influenced by lots of people, and lots of movements, and Bart influencing Boltmann in some important ways theologically here. Um, and then there's another figure that comes onto the scene that really helps to uh, crystallize dialectical theology as a movement, and that's Gogarten. So what are some key moments here um, with Gogarten as this movement comes together? Yeah, so Gogarten is a pastor um, at the time that some of these things are happening, um, 1919, 1920. And he, um, so initially, 1919 is this big Tombach, Tombach conference um, in which Bart gave a lecture um, and Boltmann and Gogarten were both present for that. Um, they didn't meet each other there, but they were, they were both interacting with, with the overall larger group of people. Um, and then the following year, um, there's an Eisenach conference um, in which Boltmann and Gogarten give lectures. Um, and that, so these two events were really crucial for it. So Bart gives a lecture, then Boltmann and Gogarten give lectures. And there's a sense they all kind of realize, oh, we're, we're kind of on to something here. There's a similar issue. We're all kind of attacking our professors and our teachers. Um, and Bol- Boltmann in particular was deeply influenced by Gogarten's lecture in 1920. So Gogarten gives this lecture um, 
and on religion and uh, and Boltman is is kind of like you know this is amazing this is this is eye opening um, I need to I need to incorporate this in my work um, and so that was I would say Boltman's conversion to dialectical theology happened at that conference mm-hmm. 1920 okay um, because at that point he realizes that the quest for the historical Jesus has to die theologically has to die um, and the, and we have to do something else, go elsewhere. Um, so the, after that Eisenach conference, um, Gogarten goes to Switzerland. He meets Turnizen. He meets. He stays with Bart for a week, um, and he's he's kind of meeting all these folks over in Switzerland, through our um, through kind of these early the early movement of of what's going on. Um, Bart, of course, is a pastor uh, in Southernville at the time. Um, and that's really the birth of the movement, 1920 into 1921. So this is in the fall of 1920. Um, yeah, and then by the next year, it was a full-fledged thing. They had a, they, and then in March 1921, uh, so you know, half a year later or so, um, Gogarten initiates the, the move to start a journal. So that, that gives birth to... Uh, uh, sufficient in Zeiten, and uh, that's the you know between the times, and that's the the journal that that more or less defines the movement. Right, and it lasts up until the early '30s, when there's a yeah. uh, falling out between a number of them, primarily about different responses to uh, national socialism and Hitler, and uh, perceived divergences about natural theology and things like that. Uh, yeah. But for that decade and more, there was this journal, Zwischen in Zeiten, or between the times that they all collaborated in, and they published each other's essays in and uh, really created an identity for dialectical theology as a movement. Um, just really quickly, for those who might not know, uh, Turneisen, who we've mentioned a couple times, was another pastor in Switzerland, and he lived kind of in the next valley over from Bart, uh, while Bart was engaged in writing his commentary on Romans. And the two of them used to uh, bicycle over back and forth to each other and uh, hang out and talk theology. And uh, so they were uh, both working very closely together in the development of these early concepts uh, that gave birth to dialectical theology. Um, but in the danger of falling down the historical rabbit hole, which both David and I love to fall down, uh, we were trained by folks who, who like to read history and we kind of inherited that. Uh, we don't want to fall down into that too much. Um, so let's keep moving. Um, when we think about dialectical theology as a movement, I mean, and, and given especially that it was a movement that fell apart eventually, uh, we have to I recognize that there are different ways of being uh, dialectical theologians and doing dialectical theology. And uh, there's really two primary ways uh, that come out of this movement. That's kind of the Bart way and the Boltmann way, uh, very closely related, but also with some key distinctions. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the different approaches to dialectical theology and what it means to do dialectical theology. Um, we can, and we keep using this word dialectical, right? Uh, so what do we mean when we use the word dialectical in this context? Well, so just to clear up some ways we're not using it, right. um, I think the first thing to say is it's not simply um, a dialect, it's not a method where we use, we would say one thing and then we take it away. You know, it's right. like yes, yes and no, thesis antithesis, antithesis kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, that is often associated with kind of a platonic dialogue or with Kierkegaard or... Um, with Hegel, if you want to have a more kind of progressive synthetic approach. Right, and a more, a more metaphysical dialectic. Right, yeah, exactly. So in those, you could say that there's a certain dialectical method going on um, in which the, 
the form of our argumentation is itself that's where the dialectic happens is in the style the form of the argument mm -hmm. um, and this this uh, has this view of it has impacted bart studies um, to no small extent over the years i've uh, i saw a video once of tf torrance tom torrance one of Bart's students and a uh, major figure in Bart reception in the English language, uh, he, when he was asked this question, what does it mean that Bart is dialectical, he gave this kind of method answer and said that, you know, Bart's, what, what it means to say that Bart is dialectical is that he keeps asking questions of the subject matter and he tries out this answer and no, that doesn't work and tries out the other answer and no, that doesn't work and keeps refining the question uh, on and on and on until he gets down to the core of it. And for Torrance, that's what dialectical uh, method means in dialectical theology. And this approach of identifying it with a method is what ends up giving rise to Hans Ernst von Balthasar's reading of Barth's development as early on being a dialectical theologian, later on turning to analogy. Uh, this work has been uh, thoroughly uh, deconstructed by Bruce McCormick's historical study of Barth. Uh, and really what this requires is recognizing that dialect the dialectic and dialectic theology is a material thing, not just a formal thing. It's not just a formal method that you, that you use. It's actually some subject matter commitment that's going on there uh, at the core of Barth's theology and the Boltmann and others uh, from this period. So when we talk about Barth, what's the core of the theology there? What's the material commitment? So I argue that the core material commitment is this commitment to an eschatological soteriology. So, so, so just to unpack that a bit, um, it's soteriological because it's a, it's a divine act to, to, to rescue, to save, to, do, to change the situation. It's a, there's an old and there's a new. Um, so old new is a better way of thinking about it than say yes, no. Um, the old new approach is eschatolo eschatological because there's, there's an end in sight, there's a, a reality that, that is impinging upon our, us. But it's, uh, it's, also, it's soteriological as well. It's not simply just a you know, future horizon. It's a present reality. Mm -hmm. um, so the eschatological soteriology is important because um, this becomes the kind of the norm or the criterion by which Bart then evaluates uh, other theologians. It's a liberal theology. They lose the eschatology. Um, uh, when, he, when he attacks natural theology, it's because natural theology, again, it collapses the eschatological reality into history, into nature, mm -hmm. um, and thereby undermines the, the soteriology that it, that the eschatology makes possible. Right. So it, all that stuff, but basically you can you can trace that through Bart's trajectory. The, the change for Bart, um, and, and here I will think of my uh, indebtedness to Bruce McCormick's uh, more recent work, um, is just that in, in the post church dogmatics to to a doctrine of election period part uh, this actually happens earlier but that's kind of the more famous moment but Bart shifts more and more towards a protological conception of, of soteriology so not so much the eschatological uh, eternal now that you see in Romans but more this um, uh, decision of election by God in pretemporal eternity mm -hmm. so that becomes the focal point for Bart um, in his later dogmatics. Um, it still does the same work as the early eschatological soteriology, mm -hmm. but the focal point is now in the eternal past rather than the eternal future. So a different set of conceptual tools that he develops along the way. But in each case, like you said, he's working with, uh, you, you use the language of old and new, um, eschatology and 
uh, history. We can also talk about transcendence and immanence here. Uh, for Barth, there's always that other divine transcendent uh, beyond that is uh, impacting and breaking into and transforming uh, what we have around us and what we see and what we do in our cultures and our histories and our societies and our politics and so on and so forth in our theologies uh, centrally. So yeah, the transcendent and imminent dialectic there, so to speak, this material concern to say that uh, God is not captured and contained and restricted within uh, the horizons that we see around us, but is constantly breaking them open from the outside. And it's important to see that, that that's how Bart responds to the liberal project of, of endorsing war and the German nationalist project is that those views collapse the eschatology into history mm -hmm. and thereby um, allow God to become an object of, of endorsing our political programs and our social, social issues. Right. So. so the war becomes a means to the end of accomplishing God's work in the world. Right. Yeah. Art is not happy with that. No. Uh, <laughs> So we've talked a little bit about how Bart thinks of the material commitment within dialectical theology. Well, what about Boltmann? Uh, what are some ways that he does it similarly or differently from Bart? So crucially, I want to say that Bart and Boltmann are on the same page regarding the eschatological soteriology. Um, the difference is that Boltmann remains with that same eschatological soteriology to the end of his career. So he doesn't change. And, it, and in fact, he just he kind of emphasize, he, doubled, he doubles down on the eschatology. Um, that becomes really a central point for him. Um, the eschatology wasn't always as crucial to Bart, so he was able to dispense with it, and that was fine. Um, but the really key difference between the two of them, I, I would want to say, is Bart approaches this whole thing from the perspective, so to speak, of the God invading the world, uh, the God who changes the situation and makes the old into the new, whereas Boltmann he examines the whole thing from the perspective of the person who's being changed by God. So his, his approach, it's the same norm. It's the same basic soteriological norm, but it's been fleshed out from the existential position of the one who is experiencing this and receiving it and, and the, being, the one being transformed. So in that sense, it's the passive position versus the, the, the divine active position in part. So if, if dialectical theology is theology that takes its cues from this soteriological event, uh, this event where God breaks in and, and transforms and changes, uh, Bart's approach, so to speak, is looking uh, back up the ladder to see where all of this came from and talk about that, whereas Boltman kind of looks uh, further downstream to describe how this takes root in life and the, uh, how it affects the human person and their perception of the world, their existence, uh, more or less. Yes. Is that, right. more, is that about what you're... Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a famous distinction between um, Aquinas and Luther on the same thing. Aquinas taking this kind of sapiential approach, Luther taking a more existential approach. In some ways, you know, Bart and Boltmann are, are in the same mold. You know, Bart taking the more Thomistic sapiential approach and Boltmann taking the more Lutheran uh, existential approach. But it, so it fits the same kind of basic paradigm. And, and, and playing into the habit that people have of comparing Bart and Thomas, so it works as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which there's, there's some truth to that. So uh, both these are the main dialectical theological streams, and then you have other people uh, coming off from both uh, Bart and Boltmann and, and extending those uh, two different approaches and those two different perspectives. Um, and then you get all kinds of arguments both between Bart and Boltmann and their descendants about who uh, is the unique claimant.
to uh, dialectical theology, who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong, who's going off the rails and things like that. Until you get to people like uh, both Goldwitzer and Jungel, uh, who both in their own ways and in very different ways nonetheless, um, try to bring the two together. Uh, Jungel, in some sense, working from the Boltmanian side and stretching over to Barth, and Goldwitzer, in some sense, working from the Bardian side and stretching over toward Boltmann. Uh, so that's, I think, why you and I have found both Goldwitzer and Jungel so interesting. Yep. Just some biographical reflection. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, the only thing left on our little prepared outline is to talk about uh, what the essential features of dialectical theology are uh, for today. If we were going to do contemporary dialectical theology like you and I want to do, uh, what are some of the guiding uh, signs there that we need to attend to? Okay, so I'll, uh, I'll take... I'll take the first one. Um, so, okay. <laughs> uh, I would say I would say a starting place would be to recognize um, revelation as an event. Um, I think that's uh, there's a lot of mi misunderstandings about that, and a lot of concerns that maybe that um, that's too um, not materially concrete enough. But it's important. Um, Dialectical theology depends upon this event character of God's speaking and acting. Um, why that's important? Well, um, I would say primarily for Bart Boltmann, it's important because that's what funds this critique of the socio-political order um, and as well of the church and doctrine as well. So their critique of both Christian doctrine, Christian tradition, as well as political orders and structures um, comes down to uh, this notion that God is is not capturable uh, and ungraspable by uh, by the world, and so um, it's that event character um, that makes that makes that uh, possible and you know conceivable for us. Um, so that would be a I think that's a crucial starting point, and a lot of things kind of follow from that. Yeah. So I mean, we can talk about it in with a lot of different terms. We can talk about. Uh, revelation as an event, we can talk about justification as an event, we can talk about vocation as an event, Bart does all of these things. Uh, Bart talks about spirit baptism, that's another way he has of uh, getting around this. Um, but in every case, um, that transcendent element that's breaking into the world has, uh, has not been found in the world sitting there waiting to be discovered. It's not like this little, I don't know if you can see, I've got this little squishy brain that I can squeeze and relieve my stress. It's not like I discover this out in the field somewhere and pick it up and look it around and say, okay, here's Revelation and, and move on from there. It's more like somebody threw this across the room and whacked me in the head with it, and I had to stop and say, where did that come from? And that's, uh, that's Revelation. It kind of sneaks up on you. It happens to you. It surprises you, and uh, you're not always entirely sure where it came from. Um, so that's, I think, what we're getting at with this whole event language and uh, wanting to focus dialectical theology on an encounter with God that happens in that kind of eventful sense. Yeah, and uh, I think we'll all, you know, in the future we'll have to um, maybe do some more videos <laughs> teasing out and explaining, um, uh, defending it against, there's a lot of, of counter arguments against this, you know, the yeah. notion that, you know, obviously we're not all encountering God for the very first time. We're part of a tradition. We're in history. We're mm -hmm. in a social context. So, um, so it, it, it's, uh, it's important. It gets complicated. It's very complicated, but we have to, so there's a certain commitment here to an event uh, character of revelation. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. Regardless of how we might later on flesh that out and explain it, um, there's, there's a certain core, core conviction there that we want to hold on to. Right. And I think that plays right into the next, uh, 
feature that we wanted to talk about, the whole idea that faith is missionary. And I think this is a really central feature of dialectical theology for you and I, especially considering our uh, theological and spiritual autobiographies uh, coming out of American evangelicalism and, and uh, that form of church life that talks so much about mission and missionaries and so on. And I just, I was thinking about this this morning. I went through uh, my MDiv program and got into a PhD program and had basically forgotten all about this whole mission business. And then I end up uh, working for John Flett, teaching a class, helping him teach that class. And all of a sudden, mission was back in the middle of my radar. And I was, it, it gave me a whole different perspective on, on uh, Bart and his theology and the dialectical theology movement in general. And it just it fit very easily given the background, but it was something that I neglected for so long. So it was uh, interesting to find that again in dialectical theology and, and uh, make it a key part of my thinking. How do we make this jump uh, from revelation or vocation or justification, indeed faith as an event, to also faith as being missionary? How do, how do we connect those dots? Uh, well, part of it has to do with rethinking what we mean by mission, uh, re, re, a different understanding of what it means to be missionary. Um, I think for, the, for you and me, myself, for you and me, uh, growing up in a certain evangelical context, uh, mission was going to the other country or you know, <laughs> going somewhere else yeah. um, and speaking to those heathen who don't understand uh, God and don't understand Christianity. Um, you need to learn to wear pants. Yeah. So yeah, and the cultural trappings that go with our different versions of Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I, for, for me, I mean, I, I remember um, when I was a undergrad at Wheaton, um, before I understood anything about this stuff theologically, I had a class in anthropology where we read uh, Andrew Wall's uh, the, the Missionary Movement, and he has that's enough. Kind of one of his famous essays, he introduces the idea of translation um, and the notion that. Uh, Translation is at the heart of Christianity, God translating, you know, God's self into Christ, the incarnation, and then this kind of uh, empowering translation throughout history and culture. Um, so something that, so in the kind of more contemporary mission theory and, and missiology, there's a shift from this kind of more colonial conception of mission as going to another place and catechizing them in the ways of Christianity towards thinking about mission as the self-understanding of theology, of the Christian, uh, a, a, a explication of what, it, what Christianity is itself as the gospel, and that gospel being essentially missionary, and God being essentially a missionary God. And what that then can mean is that um, Christian faith is a, is, a, is a faith that moves and goes out and constantly... Um, recontextualizing itself, um, in, engaging new cultural situations and contexts, uh, appropriating new resources and ideas. Um, so there's a sense in which mission has been relocated from my encounter with the non-Christian or this kind of other mm -hmm. towards recognizing my own identity and the identity of this faith as one that is constantly um, in progress, in motion. Um, and always uh, discovering itself anew and, and rethinking itself. So, so, so in that sense, it, it, you can see it ties in really well with the idea of revelation as an event. If God's an event, if revelation is an event, then it's, it's never static. Mm -hmm. It doesn't produce something that's fixed and for all time. 
but um, but rather it generates constantly new ways of thinking, speaking, and living in relationship with God and others. So in that sense, it's missionary. Especially as the event of divine encounter occurs in other languages and other cultures, uh, it's going to develop different forms of life and expression uh, that uh, look vastly different than anything that has ever come before. Um, and so that's, that's where you get into that kind of transcultural element uh, of, of mission in a dialectical theological uh, register, where it's not about communicating certain doctrines or beliefs and handing them on from one person to another. It's about recognizing where this event of divine encounter is taking place and helping to nurture in oneself and in others uh, appropriate modes of expression and appropriate modes of life for uh, how to bear witness to that event, which, of course, brings us to the third feature, which is uh, theology is hermeneutical and political, dialectical, theological. Theology is hermeneutical and political. So do you want to say a bit about the hermeneutical side of that, David? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, so hermeneutics is just the, the science of interpretation, of understanding. Um, so understanding is always ongoing. It's not a final, uh, you know, arrive at some fixed understanding. So in that sense, the hermeneutics connects with the mission, connects with the event. It's, a, it's an ongoing process where we're, we're, at, we're always um, understanding our, both ourselves and God and the world and others um, in new ways. Um, but, but the hermeneutics is important also insofar as it's involving theological and biblical hermeneutics. That is, it's a reading of the tradition, reading of these texts, and probing them in new, in new ways to explore them historically and interculturally, um, theologically. Uh, so in that sense, dialectical theology is um, a recognition that we are always understanding ourselves and our traditions in new ways and uh, seeking to articulate those um, in ways that are faithful to our situation, our context, um, but aren't, you know, we aren't, uh, but it's, it's resistant to a sort of collapse into a single form and saying, now we've arrived, or this is finished. Um, so it's, it resists that. If you look at the biblical texts, I mean, what we're dealing with is a record of a prophetic and apostolic preaching in their own experience of um, this divine encounter uh, vectored through Jesus, what we talked about earlier, the kerygma. And so the theological task is always throughout history and every single time and place to interrogate uh, very critically and very thoroughly and very strictly all the different ways that people have brought this uh, experience to expression uh, in both thought and action uh, to try to cut through that and understand the ways that it does justice to that experience, to that charisma, and the ways that it does not. That's, that's for me what the, what the hermeneutics is all about, is trying to understand. Um, it, it's, it's really like if you're in church in an evangelical tradition and maybe it's a Sunday night service or something like that, and somebody gets up and give their, gives their testimony, right? And your job now is to figure out, okay, uh, exactly how does all of this relate back to Jesus or uh, faith or this, that, and the other thing, or the God that we read about in the Bible. You've got to perform this kind of interrogative uh, function to understand the core of what's going on there. And then, uh, for my money, you have to work this out also politically. Um, because if you have this kind of divine encounter where you encounter Jesus in this way, this charisma, um, because it's it's a transcendent event, this kind of thing that comes from the outside and breaks you open. The only proper way of responding, it's not good enough to just respond with some kind of mental knowledge. You can't now just rattle off a list of theological propositions and think you're done. 
because that's not what theology is about. Theology is about responding here and now, both conceptually and in one's life. So faith that comes out of this kind of divine encounter has to be fully embodied. And that means it has to come expression not come to expression not only in concepts, but in social structures and how we organize our communities and our lives together. And uh, that's politics. So um, dialectical theology has uh, very clear, I think, uh, political implications uh, that we need to tease out as well, uh, especially in our current climate, uh, which needs some very good uh, political theology, I think. Yeah, we need a real event. Yeah. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a lot of imposter events uh, kicking around. We need, to, we need to encounter the real thing and uh, take it seriously enough to try to change our lives based on it. And yeah. not just, uh, you know, how you and I treat each other, David, and we're nice and we smile at each other and we don't, we don't uh, say mean, mean things behind each other's backs, but, you know, actually go out. <laughs> well, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> but we actually go out and change some of the rules of our society to take care of people and to make sure that, uh, that uh, the values that come to us through this encounter with God uh, come to expression in our lives together. Exactly. Amen. <laughs> well, we made it through our outline. And in just about That's the good. amount of time that we wanted to take, which uh, I think just goes to show how extremely erudite we are at doing, uh, <laughs> doing YouTube videos. <laughs> My second ones. I'm an expert now. There you go. <laughs> Lots of practice. Uh, but before we go, we should remind people again, I think, that we're starting up the Society for Dialectical Theology. And if uh, anything we've been talking about here sounds interesting, if, if you've uh, heard of some of the figures we've been talking about before and want to get to know them better, uh, we encourage you definitely to join up with the Society for Dialectical Theology. Um, again, I mean, it's, it's brand new. There are no membership fees or anything like that. We're not going to ask uh, anything of you. Uh, just join up. We'll have some fun conversations uh, together, and we'll continue to think and talk about what it means uh, to do dialectical theology today, as well as what it meant to do it about a hundred years ago. Great. You want to say anything, David? Got your yeah. initials behind you, uh, looming over your shoulder. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun. I hope you enjoy, and we'll hope to see you in the Society for Dialectical Theology. Thanks.